honored this morning to have Eric read that passage. I've known Eric for probably around 10 years, and one thing that has been a constant in my relationship with that man is that he has always, in every setting, pointed me to Jesus, to keep the main thing the main thing, that all of this is about Christ. And that's what this morning's about, and I want to say on the outset that if my ability to speak this morning was in proportion to my constant, proper application of this passage to my own life, I would get up here and mumble for five minutes and then belch and then have a seizure. I think it's always best when you can teach from a place of having done and known and gotten it and then deliver that, and that's not what I'm doing this morning. I am delivering this as somebody in desperate need of it. My own heart needs to be shepherded by the Lord. I need to remember my first love. And so I pray that you would feed on Christ with me this morning as I seek to open this passage that the Lord might teach us and renew our minds. I remind you, this is the um, series that David started last week about the letters to the churches in Revelation. And the series title is Burn Brightly. And there's a theme throughout, the lampstands, the stars and the lampstands. And we don't use lampstands these days. Instead, we have sconces, and fans with lights in the middle. We have recessed can lights. I called Tim Stewart what Friday to say, hey, can you come install some can lights in my living room? So we don't really use lampstands. But bright illumination is a good picture. And right now the lights are bright. Everybody can see my son Jake doing I'm not sure what. But you guys remember the the Christmas candlelight service? And I did not tell David I was going to do this. So, David, sorry. Um, but my dad does the Christmas candlelight service, too. And one thing he does differently than Agape, which I really like, which I hope David hears this and is like, oh, that's a good idea. It's not a critique of the Agape service. But one thing my dad does at the end of the Christmas candlelight service is he turns all the lights off to the church, and it's really, really dark. And the only candle that's left is the Jesus candle. And then what he does is he takes his candle and he lights his candle from the Jesus candle and then passes it to the next person. And he gets everybody to go around the congregation in a big circle. And then the light goes out. And then by the end of it, when everybody's passed their their light to the next person, you can see the whole room is illuminated which is a good picture of Christ being the light of the world. And as the message goes forth to the next person and the next person, that light goes forth so that we actually can see. So we don't use lampstands, but I want to ask you to keep that picture in your mind. That the light of Christ, when in our lives and spreading, illuminates our landscape. Let me give you a refresher from last week. David kind of set the course for what these um, these themes that we're going to see in these letters are. He pointed out three things last week. We're called to shine light wherever God has placed us. 
And he also reminded us that Jesus is present among his churches, aware of each congregation's traits and needs. And lastly, David told us last week that Jesus rewards humility with his personal reassurance and favor. And Eric read us our passage this morning. And this this letter is to the church at Ephesus. If you're a note taker, um, I'm going to hit you with the outline for today's letter, but also it's the same outline for all seven churches. There's five things in every one of these letters. So if you're a note taker, you can you can jot these down. You can keep these for reference sake for for the rest of these letters over these next few weeks. But in every one of these letters to the churches, there's a characteristic of Jesus. That's how it starts. It's usually a metaphor, but it's a, a characteristic or a description of Jesus. And then, in every one of these letters, there's something that Jesus shares regarding his knowledge of that church's works. And then, in every one of these letters... Jesus gives an exhortation for that church. Sometimes it's an encouragement. Other times it's a warning. Other times it's a rebuke. And then in every one of these letters, Jesus has an admonition to hear. It's the same exact thing for every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear. And then lastly, in every one of these letters... Jesus gives a promise for the faithful. So a characteristic of Jesus, Jesus' knowledge of the church's works, Jesus' exhortation for that church, Jesus' admonition to hear, and Jesus' promise for the faithful. <clears throat> and this morning we're in the church to Ephesus, the, the letter to Ephesus. Let me give you some background for this church. It was a major city. Some reports say that it was maybe second to Rome during this time in size and in influence. There are two major sources of the city of Ephesus' wealth and cultural impact. It was a center of trade and also was a center of paganism, paganistic worship. It was home to the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul, during his ministry in Acts, you can read about this, um, and during his missionary travels, he visits Ephesus, and he finds some followers of the way there, and he prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They were they had only received John's baptism; they had not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there's a Pentecost type experience there. And then, following that, as Paul ministered there, there was the signs and wonders that affirmed both Paul's apostleship, and also that the Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles. About 10 years later, somewhere around there, Paul writes the Ephesian epistle to this church. And then sometime during the next 30 years, Paul continues to encourage the saints there. Priscilla and Aquila spend some time ministering in Ephesus, as does Apollos. And then later, Timothy spends some time ministering, overseeing in Ephesus. Some historians place Mary, the mother of Jesus, as having moved to Ephesus and living there among that church, along with the Apostle John, of course, until his banishment to the Isle of Patmos, sometime around um, 85. 
So that's some background of this particular church. And for Ephesus, the characteristic that we're given of Jesus in verse 1 is the following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know from the previous verse, Revelation one twenty, what those things stand for. This is what it says. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus holds the seven stars. That word in Greek is angelos. And it can mean messenger, not just spiritual being. And he walks among the seven lampstands, which, which we know means the churches. So if you're note, again, if you're taking notes, Jesus holds the messengers in his hand and is in the midst of his church. So there's, there's some prevailing interpretations of what that means, angels, um, of the churches. One interpretation is that like each church has like a guardian angel or a predominant spirit. Um, another interpretation is that that means um, there's like a messenger angel for each church. I don't prefer either of those interpretations. Um, I like the simpler explanation, which is that the messengers, the word angelos there doesn't mean angel, it means messenger, and that the messengers of the individual churches are the pastors. Or, or overseers of those churches. So that's the interpretation that I'm using this morning. So I don't think it's likely that it's guardian angels or divine messengers, but most likely referring to the pastors and shepherds of those congregations. And I'll say this, if Jesus holds the messengers in his right hand, there is a weightiness to that. I think it provides security for the messengers to know that they are being sustained, Nick, you are being sustained and held by God as you shepherd this church and as David does the same thing. But also there's a trembling at that thought because he's got you and he's trusted you with stewardship for his body. And the next thing it says is that he stands in the midst of his church. So there's a weightiness to that. I think it's more... Nick and David, I think it's more than the general sense. So being held in in God's hand is used generally in Job 12.10. I'll read it to you. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. That's a very general sense of being held by God. But there's a very specific use of the term being held in God's hand used in Deuteronomy 33.3. Listen to this, because I think this is, maybe even John has this verse in mind when he says that, um, Jesus holds the shepherds in his hands. Listen to this verse, Deuteronomy 33.3. Yes, God loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. So I like that. I think that's how God's men who shepherd the churches are. They're held in his hand, so they follow in his steps, and receive direction from him. And so as a church, we are called to submit to our elders. They are shepherds, our overseers. They labor on our behalf for our spiritual good, for our growth, for our refinement, for our instruction. 
And that can be scary because sometimes elders are abusive. Sometimes they step outside the bounds that God gives pastors. And it can go wrong. But I think we should trust that the Lord holds them in his hand and they're held to a higher standard and God will deal with them. And they will receive their reward if they abuse his people. And there's an extreme benefit. I know being having been a parishioner here for a long time, that our elders love Jesus and seek his face and shepherd not for personal gain, but for the glory of Jesus. Chase was a pastor here um, just a few years ago. And during a time when my heart was broken and I had had hundreds of conversations about what had happened, Chase walked me around this church probably 30 times, and we just talked. And the concern that he had that he expressed to me communicated such a love and a caring that he shepherded my heart through that and gave me some things I didn't want to do to take away and apply to the situation, things that took the gospel and made it come to pass in that broken relationship. So there's a danger when elders go rogue, but there's also extreme blessing and fruitfulness when angels, when, when, when messengers from God are overseeing the church and do it well. So I encourage you to consider the, the elders of this church that they love Jesus and you are protected when you submit to them. You come under their care because their desire is to see you grow in Christ and take that message out. Submit as Jesus is in our midst and he sees the work of our pastors. The Lord holds those messengers to a higher standard. And if Jesus walks among the lampstands, there is encouragement in this thought. He is with us. He is aware of this church's situation. He knows our works. He knows our shortcomings. He lives to intercede for us. On small group Friday night, we two weeks ago, we talked about Hebrews 7.25. Listen to this verse. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is this I think it I think we can kind of wrap our heads around the idea of Jesus like having died on the cross for our sins and he takes away our sins. And then like he goes, returns to the Father and he's kind of waiting. He's, he's being worshipped and he's waiting to return. But Jesus isn't just up with the Father resting. He's, he's living so that he can intercede for his people constantly. Like Jesus suffered like we suffer. So he, he, he knows, he's intimately aware of what it's like to be human and to struggle. And that is a comfort, but also it's a comfort to know that he is currently, right now, in this moment, living to make intercession for us. So as we struggle, as we falter, we have one who understands what that's like and also is actively interceding for us constantly. He always lives 
to make intercession for those who would draw near to God. All right. So Jesus holds the messengers in his hands, and he's in the midst of his church. And following the pattern, Jesus has specific knowledge of the church at Ephesus' works. You can see that in verse 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And then if you skip down to verse 6, he says again, Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus knows the toil, endurance, faithfulness to truth, and the resolve of the Ephesian church. Jesus is honored by the discernment of the Ephesian church. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, Jesus is honored by the discernment of the Ephesian church. They had a commitment to truth. He addresses the work and the labor for the kingdom done in Ephesus. He acknowledges theological purity as a commendable work. The testing of the false prophets and apostles. He regards this as faithfulness to him. He is honored by their discernment. By the sermon of the church and its leaders. And it's cool because like, if you go back, Paul had addressed this very thing 25 years ago. 25 years or so before this letter was written, Paul addresses this very thing in his epistle. This is what he says in Ephesians... Oh, sorry. Oh, shoot. I didn't write the passage down. I think it's Ephesians 5. This is what it says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God has, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become part, partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light of the world. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We don't know exactly what the heresy of the Nicolaitans was, but there, um, is, there's, there's a lot of people who agree that one of the things that was at the core of that heresy was that since God has forgiven you of all of your sins and the law no longer has any hold over you, you really can kind of do whatever you want. And so indulge your flesh as much as you so desire. And there's some speculation that Nicholas shared his wife and encouraged others doing the same. And that's what Paul is addressing in that letter. I think it's Ephesians 5, 5 through 8, but I, I read 5 through 10. He says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And then he says, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So that's his, that's his encouragement. And we see in the letter to the, to the church in Ephesus, they had done that. 
They had been careful to distinguish this is heresy and that leads to debauchery and, and to, to sinful behavior and sexual immorality and we're, we're going to reject that teaching. And they had discerned what is true. They compared it to the gospel that they had received and the gospel they were being taught by their overseers. And then we see it again addressed when Paul wrote Timothy about how to minister in Ephesus. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 3-5. Paul writing to Timothy as he shepherds in Ephesus. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless, endless genealogies which produce or promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then listen to this verse because I'm going to address it later. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the church at Ephesus had been instructed to be careful about doctrine and to discern what is true and to, and to keep a close eye on that and reject false teachers. And then later, years later, they received this church, this letter from the Spirit that says, good job on being discerning and acknowledging false teachers, and keeping yourself pure. So they were commended for what they had done right. But I'm I'm asserting this morning that I think they missed that verse 5 in the First Timothy passage. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience. It's not just a pure heart and a good conscience that we're shooting for, but it's also that that would, be, that would bear out the fruit of love. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So verse 5, Jesus warns that the church has abandoned love. And he exhorts them to repent and do the works they did at first. So again, if you're taking notes, Jesus warns that the church has abandoned love. Being theologically sound isn't all that God desires from his followers. Knowing the counterfeit alone isn't the gold standard. But instead, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, loving others the way Jesus loves, serving Him with passion, this is what comes naturally to the one who has been set free. But this is also the very thing that can fade with time or difficulty or the realization of just how long this journey is. Jennifer and I have the honor and the privilege of doing some premarital counseling with Isaac and Josie. And it's not original with me. It's from my friend who's a pastor. But our number one theme that we've addressed every time we've met with them is lower your expectations. Because when you're in that honeymoon phase, you can't even imagine of this person that you love being annoying or stinky, or difficult. All you see is all the great qualities they have about them. I will say, I'll caveat this. I don't think Patty has ever swayed from this. I think she adores Rob the same that she did the day they met. But for most people, over time, you might find yourself 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and you say, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. It took Jennifer like five days. 
and here's a good picture of that. If Jennifer dies, I've joked that I'm going to be getting somebody's number, number at her funeral. Um, that I can't live without somebody helping take care of me. Um, and I will get remarried quickly if something happens to Jennifer. Jennifer says, I'm not doing this again. I am not getting married if something happens to you. This is hard work, and I don't remember signing up for all this. But man, it can fade over time. And that's what, I think that's what happens spiritually too. If we're not guarded and remembering our charge. So we've encouraged Isaac and Josie to lower their expectations, to despair because two miserable sinners living together forever on this earth is an impossible work. But we've also told them to take hope because in Christ and in the gospel, it is possible. He can conform us to his image. He can humble us. He can get us to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And then give us grace for the 10,000th time to say, yes, I will forgive you for that same thing you keep doing. And this is not what this passage is about, but I do want just for a moment, for those who have been married for a while, to think about this. Like, what was it like? Like, husbands, when was the last time you brought flowers home for your wife for no reason at all? Because that probably is something you did when you were dating. Like, so in as much as we're called to cherish our wives and, 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 and seek their good the way that Christ does the church, I would just encourage husbands today. I'm not here to beat you up, but remember how you used to get butterflies in your stomach at the thought of hanging out with your bride. And just, I just think there's something the Lord might take us, take, have us take away from this this morning to apply to our own relationship that's supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. Like, I don't know, but ask yourself, am I cherishing my bride the same I did when we were dating and when we first got married? And then if there's things that you did at first that you've stopped doing, ask the Lord, what would you have me do to take care of her? And vice versa. Wives, are you, are you respecting and building up and encouraging your husband? Um, I don't know why this came to my mind, but there's a stupid country song. Uh... The good stuff. <laughs> but it, it says the, there's a line, eating burnt, eating burnt suppers the whole first year and asking for seconds to keep her from tearing up. Um, but like, do you, do you, when was the last time you delighted in taking care of your husband and providing him something good that would meet his needs? I just, because I just think the Lord would have us do a little bit of work just to kindle a fire in our own relationships with our spouses, because that is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church, and it is supposed to be a a a type of gospel presentation to the world. When husbands and wives love each other the way God has commanded them in Scripture, it tells a story that's good. In the same way, our hearts should not fade from being passionate for Jesus. He, I think, He wants our relationships. Our, our marriage relationships to be a beautiful picture of that reality. So anyways, that's an aside. That's not what this passage is about, but there's something to take out of that. And I would just ask, husbands, spend five minutes in prayer today saying, Lord, what would you have me do to communicate to my wife that she's a 
beautiful daughter of the king and my treasure. Remember how much more of our own faiths should be in pursuit of Jesus and loving him deeply. There is a passage I cannot escape in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7.18. I love this. It's so simple, but it applies to so many things. I encourage you to memorize it. This is what it says. It is good for you to grasp one thing while not letting go of the other. For one who fears God comes out with both of them. So, spiritually speaking, it is good that we grasp hold of theological purity, of good doctrine, of good teaching, of expositing the word. It's good that we grab hold of what is true. But in doing so, and I will tell you, as a recovering Reformed person, Reformed churches are terrible at this, by and large. They grasp hold of theological purity and they let go of the mystery and the wonder and the, at times, loveliness of being a Christian, of of God's glory, of his goodness, the fact that the Spirit does weird things like pick up Philip in a whirlwind and take him somewhere else and warn people in dreams. We need to grasp hold of theological purity without letting go of love and passion and mystery in the spirit. God is seeking those who would worship in spirit and in truth. And the other side does the same thing. They grasp hold of the experience of God, and sometimes they can let the sound doctrine slip. You have to grab hold of one without letting go of the other. And that's why I love this church. I think that for at least a decade that I'm aware of, probably much longer than that, this church, the leaders of the church has done, have done that well. They've grasped hold of truth, but they've not let go of love and the mystery of the Spirit. Remember that, that verse five in, in, in first Timothy one. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, if you read Acts 19, you get kind of the, the, the background, the context for, for the Ephesian church. And one of the things that happens, I referenced, when, when Paul came through, he, he found like a dozen guys who were followers of the way. And he's like, did you receive, what baptism did you receive? And they said, we received John's. And they said, he said, so you haven't received the Holy Spirit. And he said, we don't know what this is. And so he prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And a very similar experience happens there that happened at Pentecost. Men began to prophesy and speak in tongues. And it was this, like, whoa, the, the Holy Spirit here and doing something new. And if you remember back in Acts at the Pentecost, the end of that chapter describes what that, those early days of the early church was like. This is what it says in Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any as had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that was the early church experience in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews. And this is maybe a a reach for me to do. I don't think it is this morning. I think if that's what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews, it's very likely that this is what the early church was like in Ephesus when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. It's very likely that their early, the early church days in Ephesus was just like this. There was sacrificial love and caring for one another and going beyond what they thought they could do to, to build up Christ in one another. Maybe the early church in Ephesus looked exactly like it did in Jerusalem. So maybe we can rightly deduce that that is what the church at Ephesus had drifted away from in order to receive this letter from Jesus. David hinted last week that to have a lampstand is not a right, but it's a privilege. And the warning... that Jesus has for them for abandoning their love is to repent or else he might come and take and remove their lampstand. Jesus made good on this warning. The church in Ephesus slowly faded into obscurity and then nothingness. About a hundred, sometime between 30 and 100 years after they received this letter. Jesus did come and remove his lampstand from Ephesus. God makes good on his promises even when they're warnings. And so I think we would do rightly to take heed of this letter and all seven letters. Because I think one of the mysteries of the letters to the churches is that it probably applies to every believer at different seasons in their life. And I think it probably applies to every church at different seasons in the life of the church. So take heed of this warning to not forget your first love and the joy and the life that you felt at the beginning of your faith journey and repent of coldness, of pride in your theology and passionately serve him and wash each other's feet. The admonition to hear from Jesus is the same in every one of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The admonition to hear is the same for all seven churches. We need God to give us ears that hear spiritual things. Where do, you, where do I get that? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you hear this letter to the churches and you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me. It might be that you don't have ears to hear. And the encouragement here is, he who has ears... Hear. And if you don't hear, ask God to give you ears to hear. Because the promise is that 
any who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The door is wide open, and he bids all come. Do you remember the um, the parable of the wedding feast? He said, go and invite my friends, and the friends are like, I'm too busy. And then he says, well, go invite anybody you find anywhere, on the street corner, anybody, and let's fill this place up. And that is the gospel call. It goes out to all people everywhere. So this morning, if you do not know Jesus, if he is not precious to you, if you're curious, if you're interested, but you're still not sure, here's what I would say to you. The gospel is the absurd message that God created everything and that at a certain point in history, he entered into that very creation, taking on all the limits of being a man. He actually became man in the same likeness of his creation. He was still fully God, but he still was fully man. And then that person being Jesus perfectly obeyed all of the commandments of God, perfectly established what righteousness was according to the law of God. He established righteousness. And then he willingly laid down his life, a fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. He was the pure, spotless lamb, and he laid down his life and took away sin by receiving in himself the punishment that is due for sin. And then he was proved to be the Son of God when he was resurrected from the dead three days after being buried. And then he ministered, he, he revealed himself to hundreds of people and he ministered for a time and then he returned to the Father and he said, it's good that I go because I will send the Spirit to lead you into all truth and help you remember the things that I've taught you. He returned to the Father. He ascended into heaven and he's promised that he will come again. And the gospel is... The gospel call is to consider this Jesus, to consider his claims, to look at his teachings, and to realize this isn't just a fantasy story, but this really is the God of the universe, this Jesus. And that by trusting in him and by believing the absurd message that he loves you, he will take away your sin. And he will say, the whole thing I did on the cross, that was to pay for your sin. And when I was proved to be the Son of God and resurrected from the dead, because I had established righteousness, I will give that righteousness to you. And so a picture is, we take off our soiled garments, our filth, and we, we lay them at his feet, and then he gives us a robe, a perfectly bright, shining robe of righteousness, and we put that on a robe that he earned. That's the exchange. You take my faith and my filth and you give me righteousness. That's the divine gospel exchange. And it's through, only through, the person and the finished work of Jesus. And so if this morning this is not that important to you, look to Christ and consider him because the gospel is true. And if you ask him for ears to hear, he will give them to you. And here's what will happen. I wrote this down. 
Cry out to God until he answers you, because he will. And this is a semblance of what will happen to you if you do this. You will see the depth of your sin. You will realize the gulf between you and God, between you and spiritual peace. God will reveal to your soul that Jesus satisfies the spiritual requirements of the law. And in love, he bids you to come to him. You will see the power of his love, the limitlessness of it, that he meant in his suffering and death, he would be providing you life. And that it was sufficient for your salvation. You will be humbled by that realization that his love was for you and your heart will swell in love in return. Gratitude for his goodness. And for the first time in your life, you will sense divine security, being wrapped up in his love and swallowed whole by life. If you look to Jesus and cry out to him, if you get alone in your closet this afternoon and get on your face and cry out to God, and you say, answer me, Reveal to me your son. He will. And waves of love will overflow you. And you will weep because you will experience God's love when you look and see Jesus. That feeling, that profound sense of divine love and wholeness, that is precisely what Jesus warns the church in Ephesus about that they had lost that feeling. That overwhelming sense of the nearness, the bigness of God, the wonderfulness of God. And what it encouraged your heart to do when you first believed. When I came to faith, there was a limitlessness to God that I saw for the first time. And it caused in me a type of recklessness in my love for him. And we're called to remember that and repent from the coldness or the routineness or the lovelessness that our faith might be prone to now and go back to doing what you did at the beginning. And here is why we need to not walk out this door forgetting what is being said this morning. Verse 7. If you're taking notes, for the faithful, there is the promise of eternal life and ultimate redemption. Jesus tells us the reward for the conqueror, which is to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Right on. But the verse goes on. And that he rewards those who seek him. It's not enough to just believe that God exists. You have to also believe that he rewards those who seek him. Listen to Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street and of the city. 
And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I've told you this before, and I don't know how many, if any of you did this, but my favorite sermon of all time is Paul Washer's Our Ambition to Please Him. Go home and listen to it. There's a quote in that. And you you can critique every person. And there's, there's merits to those critiques probably. But one of the things I really appreciate about Paul Washer is he, he understands the foolishness of preaching and he allows himself to get wrapped up in the spirit speaking to him. And at times he gets beside himself. And in this one point in the message, he, he begins to come unhinged and he yells at the young men in the congregation and he says, young men, don't pride yourself in being able to cross every T and dot every I theologically. Seek to know God and know that your name is known in heaven as well as hell. Which is a reference to when they were casting out demons and these guys are casting out demons in Paul's name. And the demons respond with, I know Jesus and I know this Paul, but who are you? And Paul Washer's encouragement in many of his sermons is to get alone with God and to know him. And he tells of a, of a time when he had this passion for the kingdom where he was invited by a bunch of friends to go on a ski trip and he just sensed, no, that's not what I should do. And so he went out into the wilderness and he just began to cry out for the Lord to reveal himself to him. And he was on this mountain throwing rocks at heaven saying, God, where are you? And God didn't show up that weekend. But later, in his closet, while he was praying, God revealed himself to him. And we need to have experiences like that. Where we, we separate ourselves from the world and this thing. And we get alone with God. And we open his word and we read John looking for Jesus. And our response is to turn the TV off and sit in darkness and cry out to him and experience the living God as he speaks to us through his word and by his spirit so that we're not being led by whim and intellect and faulty men, but we're being led by the spirit of God who is alive and working among his people and doing things that we cannot explain. We pursue him and we experience him and he's alive and real and he manifests himself to us and we begin to share that with one another as each one of us has a gift. It's for the building up of the body. So we can learn from Ephesus. We can remember our beginning and we can repent and return to that hungry pursuit of God. This is a dumb example, but two weeks ago, for the first time in my life, I thought to myself, maybe I need, maybe I need to take a break from hunting. I've, I've been a passionate deer hunter for over 20 years, but for the first time in my life, I shot a deer this year and I didn't really feel anything. It was like, it was like I went to the grocery store and bought a gallon of milk. 
My, I haven't said this to my wife, and so she's probably delighted to hear this right now. But yeah, I, I shot a deer, and it was kind of like, huh, eh, cool. It wasn't that like exhilaration that has happened the 27 times prior. That is a stupid example. But what's meaningful is do you come in here on Sunday morning sometimes and go, yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. Man, <laughs> I have shame on me. The word is calling me to repent and do the works I did at the beginning. I need to come in here eager, expecting God is going to be here among us this morning and he is going to speak to me and there are lost people in this room right now because there are and he might save one of them. Man, and, and that should be, that should be what gets us to bed early on Saturday night and gets us up excited on Sunday morning. I'm going to um invite the worship team up and is this okay? And I'm going to ask the lights to come down and this team is uh, people who have gifts and skills and talents and their their desires to serve this body by leading us into worship. And my desire for this morning all week has been that our hearts would be stirred to worship Jesus. I want us to remember what it was like when we first believed. And if you don't believe, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, my encouragement to you this morning is look to Jesus and be saved. And let him do what I described earlier, of filling your heart with the fullness of divine love. I want us to respond to God this morning. And I want us to remember this morning as a day when God came near to us. He convicted us of coldness. And we experienced again what it means to worship Him in spirit and truth and in joy. So they're going to play a song. And my invitation is for each one of you However the Spirit leads, if you need to get on your face like this, then do that. If you want to cry out, if you need to weep, weep. If you need to go pray with somebody over here, go grab them and say, I need you to pray. Jason did it two weeks ago. He came over to me and he said, can you pray for me? And we got on our face and prayed before God. Whatever it is, as the Spirit leads, but don't just sit here in coldness. Respond to Jesus in the gospel. And all who are able, stand up and cry out with your voice, but more importantly, cry out with your heart and exult in who God is. And the, the absurd reality that he loves you as messed up as you are. I'm going to read a passage before they play. And I want you to hear the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. This is the first chapter of Ephesians. And listen to what is ours in the person of Jesus.
and then respond in worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father God, be with us now. Stir our hearts to affection, affection for you, praise in what you have accomplished, worship of Jesus. Stir among your people now. Conform us into your likeness. Change our minds. Let us put down sin and take hold of the truth that you love us and you've removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of the completed work of Jesus. And may we rest in you and cry out to you singing of your goodness. May our neighbors next to us in the rows hear our praise and may it stir their own hearts as we are a people redeemed by God, being knitted together for your glory so that we might take the gospel into Pinson and Birmingham and and Alabama and beyond. We are the ends of the earth, and you are doing your work of advancing your kingdom until every tribe and tongue and people have worshipers, and we long for the day when Jesus returns to gather his bride and to take us up and swallow us up in eternal life and ultimate redemption. We long to see you face to face, We long to be in your presence without the burden that is this flesh and our sin. We look for that. Give us hearts that hope in that more than anything else. May we hope for the day that you gather your people and bring us into your presence forever. Where sin and suffering are no more, where wars have ceased, where only righteousness dwells. Give us now a moment, a taste of who you are, 
to exult in your goodness and worship you. And may, Lord, you be present with us in a powerful way so that every person leaves this place longing for the next time we have that same experience. And we're not seeking experience, Lord. We're seeking Jesus and hearts that worship you in spirit and truth. Do that work amongst us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.